Hey, hello and welcome to the Creating Hope Together, the journey through the abyss of mental health. This is Peter, your host. I hope you're all doing well today. This podcast is designed for anyone that um, battles every day against mental health, mental injury, addiction, traumas. Um, And many people uh, have also been drawn into that abyss of mental health and addiction and things like that from others, parents, friends, relatives, things like that. And we're just here to help to talk about some of these issues. And um, if you're looking for information, listen to this podcast, and we truly hope this will help you out. And all are welcome. Uh, I believe that the value of one person that suffers from mental health, addiction, traumas, PTSD, helping another person is without parallel. This that, That's really how it works because the experience of one giving it to another is fantastic. And that's what this is designed to do. Now, please remember that the first step we take, large or small, It's the most important step that we take, and many times we don't even know we took that step. So be vigilant and uh, give yourself a break. Um, So how it works is we do. I do individual interviews with people that have been through addiction, alcoholism, traumas, and they share their journey through their abyss and into uh, their victories. So today I have with us Paul C. And Paul, hey, welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, really glad that we were able to get together and get the schedule kind of set up so we could uh, talk and, and go over some things. What I'd like to do is, can I get just before we get into it a lot, could it, just a little bit of background about you, um, how long you've been in the program and things like that? Yes. Yeah, Peter. Um, my, my sober date, clean date, is March 31st, 2013. I began trying to get sober uh, right around 1999 was my first time where I wanted to truly stop, um, but without the right effort, you know, I wasn't successful. So from 1999 to 2013, um, I had periods of abstinence where I could quit, but, uh, alcohol would always call me first. And then my, uh, experience with drugs would be second. Um, not too far behind, and I would take another run, whether it was in the beginning, I could go for a year or two at a time and kind of maintain. Um, but by the time 2013 came around, uh, I made a decision. I was done. Um, you know, I was willing to do what the 12-step programs offered us that had been my experience in trying to figure out a way to get sober and stay sober um, was through the 12-step programs that I was introduced to uh, through um, alcohol and addiction rehabs or mental health facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a well-known one here about an hour away that I'd spent some time in thinking maybe it was just a mental health problem. You know, from some of the experiences that I had throughout my life, I had heard in these centers I would go to, you know, you have to, Paul, you need to address uh, these things you're telling us about. And we've got a feeling that you're only touching the surface. Mm. And if you want to be successful, you need to, you need to talk about it. And I would hear things like, you have the only disease that could be talked away to some degree. And um, 
you know, without doing that on a, on a regular basis, um, I couldn't stay sober. But uh, my official, I spent 12 or 13 years there trying to get sober. Gotcha. And so <clears throat> what you you said a lot in there, there's there's always a process. Um, <clears throat> there, we'll get into that story of, uh, you know, what was going on then and, you know, as in your early years as well. But you, the one thing you were saying when you were trying to do it, you just kind of, you know, abstained, uh, never a lot of growth there during that abstinence period because we're fighting it all the time. But you said one word that jumped out at me <clears throat> and it's kind of appropriate. You said maintain. And I was listening to a uh, your Twitter today. And well, I, the last couple of days for sure. And you had something of reading about maintenance and maintaining. Um, do you happen to have that up right now where you could read that for us? Uh, I can hear in a second. Was that today's? Yes. Today's, today is June 30th and it's called Maintaining the Foundation. Our newly found faith serves as a firm foundation for courage in the future. Basic text, page 96. The foundation of our lives is what the rest of our lives is built upon. When we were using, that foundation affected everything we did. When we decided that recovery was important, that's where we began to put our energy. As a result, our whole lives changed. In order to maintain those new lives, we must maintain the foundation of those lives, our recovery program. As we stay clean, our lifestyles change. Our priorities will also change. Work and school may become important because they improve the quality of our lives and new relationships may bring excitement and mutual support. But we need to remember that our recovery program is the foundation upon which our new lives are built. Each day we must renew our commitment to recovery maintaining that as our top priority. I want to continue, just for today, I want to continue enjoying the life I've found in recovery. Today, I will take steps to maintain my foundation. That's the reading. I like that. That's that's a great reading. Um, and we'll throw it in there right now, but we'll also put it back in there at the end. Um, Paul's Twitter is uh, JFTGUY and just for today guy. And he does this reading every morning and um, every day. So, Paul's heart for service. He's done this for well over a year now, uh, doing that particular year. reading, and, and yeah, it's terrific. So if you want to go there every morning, start your day with uh, Paul. I would highly recommend it. So here you are today, out on social media, reading just for today. You know. Um, and clean, uh, nine years clean. And um, you're you're here today for a reason. <laughs> so that's right. Let's go back to kind of where a lot for a lot of recovering uh, addicts and alcoholics, uh, kind of where it started. Maybe um, right. tell me a little bit about what your uh, childhood was like. Right. Yeah, definitely. The foundation I maintain today is goes all the way back to my childhood. Um, uh, my parents are from a small town here in Pennsylvania, central PA. 
and uh, probably at about four or five years old, my father, uh, through his sister, went to New York, Manhattan, for a job opportunity. There, um, you know, of course, me and my older brother at the time had gone up with him as well. Um, the first, but we first lived with my grandmother on my dad's side in uh, Far Rockaway, which is in Queens, outside of Manhattan, about 45 minutes, and uh, what you might hear called the projects. Um, you know, it was definitely a mixed population, um, so that was new to me. Um, things that I were seeing, you know, not so much at four years old, but definitely at six and seven. Uh, you know, the, the formation of different groups of friends. Um, you know, maybe I was all, I was the new kid. So I made extra efforts to make friends, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, it gave my father an opportunity to become successful and, you know, and build a family. Like I said, I was about four or five. Um, and just some of the things that I could even think back then, you know, was, um, you know, as kids do, maybe a little bit of bully, maybe a little bit of ganging up on the new kid at times. From there, we went after my father was at his job for a while. We then moved into, uh, into Queens. And, um, you know, right around 10 or 11, I had an older brother, four years older, and um, a cousin that was four years older than him that lived with us. And, um, you know, they were already into uh, drugs and alcohol, and because they were protectors, they took me everywhere with them. Um, so I remember... You know, the first experience I had being up in East New York um, with older brother, older cousin, and uh, just sitting in the back seat and getting high off the aroma, you know, and uh, being told, you don't ever want to do this. And, uh, you know, within the next day or two, me and my buddies were taking the bus on our own to go get it, you know, because it's... I remember how it made me feel, you know, it, it erased some of the things that were going on at home and it made me part of group of a group of friends that, uh, took me in, you know, um, back then it was a lot of kids hung out in the neighborhoods, you know, we didn't sit at home on computers. So yeah. And from there, uh, you know, my father began to become successful in his job, so we definitely didn't want for anything. Um, but, you know, there was also some violence in the home with my father being physically abusive with my mom. So, you know, the drugs and alcohol at that time, even at 13, you know, would help me feel better about that. And which that kind of put you on, you know, heightened alert, you know, like every time you maybe woke up in the morning, what kind of uh, dad was going to be there, you woke up or you uh, came home from school, you know, what was the situation going to be once I opened the door or when he got home from work or so you kind of had this, like I had to have a, you know, hypervigilant kind of a uh, attitude most of the time. Yes, I remember the feelings of always having to, you know, I never knew what was going to happen. My father at the time also drank pretty heavily, or definitely very heavily, and uh, that was in the 70s and 80s in New York, right around Queens and Manhattan, so um, he was going through his own battles, um, while also being successful at work, so the feelings of, I hope this don't happen again. You know, we had to be in the house for dinner or else, you know, we ate as a family. So that had some good qualities. But I also remember when my mom and dad would start to fight, how I would, how I felt about that. My, 
friends would be out. <coughs> my friends would be outside, so there was a lot of embarrassment. So I remember having the, you know, that's when I began stuffing things, acting as if what you kids heard in my house didn't really happen. You know, uh, the people who were coming to save my mom didn't really happen. Um, so just ignoring it, but uh, perhaps my friends also maybe had something similar going on, but definitely not to the degree that was going on in my house. Uh, you know, he was physically abusive. Um, that didn't mean I didn't love him, but I, I constantly learned to forgive him for what he had done at a, at a young age. Um, the better part of that would have been, you know, maybe uh, having someone to talk to at the time. Um, but when I went to school, I didn't tell nobody. You know, me and my brother both knew what was going on, but we didn't talk about it to each other. Uh, my brother handled it differently than I did. You know, I was trying to always talk it away or stuff it emotionally. So. Yeah, I've seen that where, um, whether it's a, a personality of a person or just a, a eight four year age different difference, um, your brother's perspective of what was going on was quite different from your perspective, what was going on. And, and it really amazes me how um, you, you're you in the same situation, yet two people will see it and have a totally different experience. Yeah. Yeah, I was the uh, person who would negotiate my way out of trouble. And my older brother was a bit more forceful when he handled things. There wasn't anybody going to say something to him. It's, you know, he was a pretty good fighter, let's say. Um, so he dealt with his problems in that way, I believe, you know, from what I was seeing. And uh, he also protected me, you know. So there were some things I think back on now that, um, you know, where I, I developed some skills there where I could... You know, when people ask me what happened, I could make it sound better than what really happened. I could be much more friendlier so that it didn't really happen exactly the way it did. Um, you know, always just, you know, keeping the defenses up. And, uh, you know, I developed many, many, many. And, um, you know, and, and then getting involved in drugs helped me to deal with that, too. Yeah, you know, I didn't exactly know that at the time when I'm 15, um, but uh, yeah, it, it was uh, quite the time. I mean, it was pretty crazy. You know, at the same time, uh, you know, I had uh, a family, an uncle, a favorite uncle at the time. You know, there was a big mob scene at the time in our in our neighborhood. You know, all the mob my uncle who I loved to death and I looked up to him a whole lot. All my dad's brothers were in Pennsylvania. So I had this uncle that was like a really important guy and uh, he took me everywhere. So that took me away. He didn't do what my dad did at home, but he definitely was a, a stand up man on the street. So I always felt safe around him and, um, you know, that was quite interesting. You know, that was another reason. Maybe sometimes I caught a little bit of break from my friends because of who my uncle was. You know, I think he knew what was going on and his way of treating me so well all the time and taking me everywhere. I mean, we would walk right into the New York Rangers locker room, the Knicks locker room. The Islanders were winning all the Stanley Cups at the time. Uh, 76er games, um, you know, his, his career didn't end well. Um, he got caught with a Hall of Fame New York Yankee. But, yeah, it was like two different worlds, especially when we would have family get-togethers. You know, I'd have my dad, who I loved to death, and then my uncle, you know, and there was always a situation there in the middle I was trying to deal with, thinking – 
doesn't dad act like, you know, Uncle Tommy, um, you know, because it was a different inside. My aunt and uncle's home was much different. You know, there was no, my aunt didn't get hit by him. You know, food didn't fly across the, the room. Um, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. You know, I oftentimes wish I would ask my uncle to make that stop happening. And I think there was a few warnings to my dad, but that didn't stop him. But my dad was becoming very successful in his career, you know, in the city. He was a property manager, property engineer for five or six major hotels. So So you had this paradox of being able to see you know, kind of like this darkness, uh, what's going on. And then you see this light, a kind of a whole different, uh, behavior and attitude. And right. so it sounded like you were kind of right in the middle and getting, uh, conflicted by, you know, what is going on in your young mind. And then you combine the drugs and alcohol yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you don't know it at the time, what's going on. You just know that, you know, I would at times hate my dad. And then I would even be mad at my mom for raising her voice and fighting back with her. And, um, you know, it just always seemed to be that there was nothing I could say either, you know, because I was I would get fearful at the time. And, um, you know, there's a lot of violence. You know, yeah. at the same time, though, you know, again, it was, uh, we'll call it the mobsters at the time. Um, we would entertain uh, these gatherings of my uncle and my dad's friends in our basement. So, for example, they would have casino night down in the basement. You know, we had a pretty nice house. And, you know, I remember 50 guys down there, you know, roulette tables set up, blackjack tables set up. Uh, just, you know, they were gambling, but there was also just a lot of camaraderie going on, you know, amongst the older men. And, you know, that felt really good at times. That felt really good. Like everything was perfect. You know, the older guys were handing us kids money and bringing us gifts, you know, and uh, that made me feel so good. And then the next day there might be violence again in my house you know, with the physical abuse of my mom. And, um, you know, that, I think that was fueled by my dad's own alcoholism at the time. Gotcha. You know, he, he was dealing with things through alcoholism as well. And uh, that was something he repeated from his dad. So I remember saying, I'm never going to do what my dad did. But I had already started, you know, with smoking marijuana you know, me and my buddies, you know, they have a whole row of alcohol in the basement for their casino night. And we were we were definitely sneaking and drinking ourselves, you know, and that's made it feel like everything in the world is fine, you know. So that was this, you know, that was your, let's say, let's call it the first foundation, you know, you were building and as you were growing up. And so a lot of times we don't know what's what we're doing or what what it's going to mean for you know the future um so after you know the teenage years um did you have another move like back yeah, yeah. we went yes um because of uh my mom and dad's fighting um i was in the seventh grade and uh I, or eighth grade and I come out of junior high school to a moving van. And uh, my mom had said she was leaving. Now, this had happened before, you know, or my grandma would come up and get us and take us back to Pennsylvania. Or my mom's sister would come up and get us. But the day that I come out of junior high school in eighth grade to a moving van, you know, that recently as we discussed a little bit that was a pivotal point in my life you know like i had no say we basically went from park avenue in new york which is where we were living 
to a really dumpy place here in Altoona because my mom was leaving my dad. Um, and it was the last time, or at least the last time we were going to be in New York because we never really went back, uh, back and forth for the next couple of years. But I didn't live there. My brother and I, my brother finished high school here and I continued the rest of my junior high and high school in Pennsylvania. Um, and my parents got back together eventually. I was probably 16 or 17. Um, but in Pennsylvania, it was on again, off again. You know, my father continued to drink. The physical violence at home continued. And, uh, you know, by that time in high school, I mean, there was definitely the use of alcohol uh, parties. Uh, you know, that's when I began to do harder drugs. Um, uh, acid, cocaine, uh, you know, anything we could get our hands on, we were doing. And the one thing that was more noticeable in Pennsylvania is that my friends who I hung out with would actually bring it up to me, you know, what's going on in your house? Why is your dad like that? You know, there was a family name to be known. So even I was a pretty good baseball player. I pitched and, um, you know, even the kids on the baseball team, let's say their parents would make references to how my grandfather was, which is why that's the way my dad was. And, uh, no matter what, I love my dad. Sure. You know, he was a pretty, had a hundred good qualities, but at the time, you know, the one that I never liked was the abuse. Yeah. of my mother and not being able to stop it because he was, you know, rather imposing on me. Yeah. And, so uh, that's where he was fighting, obviously his own, own demons, uh, knowing very little of, you know, how it affects you where multiple moves, you know, uh, stress of just not knowing what's going to happen from one day to the next one minute to the next. And then it sounds like they're, and then other people talking about it just creates a kind of the, the shame factor. Absolutely. And that's part of this trauma. Let me hold you right there. And I am got a little technical thing to do here. So give me. Okay. So we're back from that little break there. Um, so we were talking about, other people, people in their neighborhood on the baseball team, uh, you know, talking about, you know, your life, your family and things like that. And so it creates this shame. So you kind of have, you know, the shame, the uh, trauma of, you know, the abuse of your, your dad's abuse with your mom, uh, the stress of not knowing one thing to the next or one moment to the next what was going to happen, multiple moves in the process. So it's kind of like building this foundation of um, addiction, really. So, um, and you were using then high school and that. What happened, you know, once it increased to active addiction, what was your life like during your active addiction? Well, We'll fast forward a little bit. By the time I was 22, um, I graduated high school. I was to go into the Navy, but due to uh, being deaf in my left ear, I didn't get in. I wound up getting two associate degrees, business management and computer programming. So just like my father, I landed a very good opportunity in a computer job in 1991. Uh, I was living in Pittsburgh and uh, we probably had the five biggest companies in Pittsburgh. So my addiction was my, it was more so alcoholism at the time. Um, I had also experienced my first two failed relationships because of addiction and alcoholism. Um, but this computer job gave me ways and means 
financially to, to, you know, have the best of things appear to be everything's going well. But, you know, on the weekends I was buying cocaine, half ounces this time, you know, not grams. And, and, uh, you know, I was at periods of time I was maintaining that career, but also missing work for two or three days at a time because of my addiction. Um, so I was able to put the alcohol and at that time cocaine down and perform at my job at a high level. That job, I never, I performed well because I didn't want to lose it because it gave me everything I thought I wanted on the outside. Nice cars, nice houses, good women, um, opportunity to travel, um, and just be noticed for my own things that I was doing. You know, I think some of the broken foundation I had built was being covered up by an excessive effort at success in my career. And, uh, and then around 29 years old, um, at this time I was married, I had had an episode I was out drinking and drugging all night, uh, cocaine at the time. I come home, I did some things that, you know, a drunk person does when they get home at four in the morning, woke up the next day. Uh, I was asked, could I stop it for the holidays? And if that's all I heard after what I had done, I was real happy. So I said, yes. And, uh, later on that day, I went out to a friend's house and was introduced to Oxycontin, um, opiates. And this was around November. And uh, that's when things really, later on, a couple years later, is when the battle of addiction really began. Um, I began, you know, when I did it that first time, it was something new I had never felt. You know, the warmness in my body, the mellowness in my mind, nothing hurt. Um, and I didn't want to drink and do any other drugs, but I didn't know what it did to me, you know, the physical withdrawal. So it was right around Christmas. I called my older brother, told him I couldn't go to the family event because I was sick. And um, uh, he said, you're not sick. You've been taking them pills. You're pill sick. And uh, I, I couldn't believe it you know, that I let myself get there. But my best decision was buy more and uh, don't ever run out because I never wanted to feel that way again. Mentally, you know, it was fixing everything that I had to do. If I took a pill, I could go to work. If I had enough pills, I could go with my wife on vacation. Um, at the same time, I was hiding it from her. She didn't know. So for about three or four years, um, she didn't know, you know, the last year, I don't know how she didn't because everybody else did, you know, uh, the amount of money I was spending, you know, began to pile up. So then things that I said, I would never do what my dad did, um, were starting to show up, you know, um, do you remember how many milligrams per day you were taking of the oxy? Oh, 60, 40 sometimes, you know, it, it was, it was a lot. Um, regularly, I would say 10 or 15 a day at the time. There was just mainly the 40 milligrams. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely three or four to get going, you know, middle of the day, three or four. And at the end of the day, three or four, um, the first time I went to rehab, I went in 99, but they didn't offer rehab for opiates. Um, they gave me a scholarship for three days. The rehab did. That's the only scholarship I ever got. So, um, but yeah, and at that time, it was 2001, right around 9-11, when my wife found out. 
Um, I went to rehab without her knowing. I also went to rehab with $100,000 in credit card debt that she didn't know. And a house that I had sold that she didn't know. Um, so at the same time, you know, I had accumulated some certifications at work that I thought made me important. I had nice cars. We just bought a second home, you know, and everything seemed to be fine. And the level of guilt and shame I was experiencing at the time through my use prevented me from telling her, you know, and then all that broken foundation from years of everything I had seen, experienced, put myself through, you know, the hiding, the lying, um, you know, not wanting to repeat things that I had seen others do, you know, um, a lot of close legal calls. You know, I was taking more risk um, at work. You know, work didn't know about it. Uh, my wife and my work didn't know about it until I showed up at rehab that second time. And, um, you know, $100,000 in credit card debt, which is how she found out. Uh, walked into rehab, second day there. Counsel said, I think you should get honest and tell your wife. And I said, oh, not yet. I was sick as a dog, you know, second day. Well, he said, well, start telling me what's going on, what the real truth is. And it felt so good to be honest finally. I'm still friends with this guy today. Um, he's a big part of my support group. Um, but as I'm telling him everything I had done, he had my wife on speakerphone. <laughs> So that was how she found out. Yeah. So, um, you know, and at that time, from a recovery standpoint, I made the decision right there that I wasn't fixing nothing. You know, now that everybody knows, I got to continue this. And, uh, you know, I think I stayed there long enough to uh, make me feel a little bit better. But the guilt and shame, you know, uh, I just ran and, uh, you know, maybe disappeared for a week or two. Um, I think I went home to get some stuff. I still had ways and means. Work said they weren't firing me because I went on my own. And, uh, yeah, for a week or two, I just disappeared. You know, I spent some time here in Pennsylvania. I went down to Florida, and when I got to Florida, I ran out of money and called my wife. And um, she got me back home, and believe it or not, she was willing to give me a chance um, after all that. Uh, but, you know, being interested, I went back in the rehab, thought I was trying, but all I did was just go through the notions to save my job, save my marriage, try to figure out things with my finances, and uh, but I wasn't willing to do anything. As long as all those people said I was okay, I was okay. And without dealing with the recovery program, you know, I spent, that was around 2001, 2002 or three, and um, you know, for the next 10 years, I went on to get divorced, which I said I never wanted to do. My parents had been divorced when I was 21. Um, work had sent me to rehab a handful of times over the next 10 years. I lost, you know, three or four computer jobs. Um, I lost all my certifications. I could always get a good job uh, because of the certifications I had at the time. Microsoft, Cisco, Novell, 3Com, you know, I was high flying on the outside and uh, feeling like terrible on the inside. You know, that foundation that the reading talked about today, my foundation was fear, guilt, shame. I'm not good enough. If everybody only knew I'm a failure. Um, I can't maintain a loving relationship. I can't even take care of the dog, you know? Uh, so, and, and that's just 
a whole a whole lifetime of that broken foundation. Um, you know, there was no hope left. Uh, uh, I had no faith. I had no humility. I had nothing in me. I was empty as could be. You know, in the meantime, from those 10 years in and out of rehab, trying to get better, you know, I had also damaged just about every other relationship I had. You know, my best friend who, thank God, come back into my life a few years ago, he's the only friend I have from childhood that, you know, we're like this, he's not one of us. He's not, he didn't have the addiction problems. But uh, getting him back into my life, I remember knocking on his door. Um, I just maybe did a seven-day stint. And he said, until you get better, don't come back. And for 10 years, I didn't see him. You know, and that had always weighed on me heavy. You know, not having my best buddy. So, so what happened... To what was the what was the bottom? What what got you to say, okay, I've got I've seen this. I've been throwing patchwork at this little at my shaky foundation of of trauma, shame, guilt through the years. What was the thing, or what was the point where you just said, I I can't do it. I need a new way of to live it's funny on one hand i hated myself so much that somebody one of the last things i heard while i was in a facility was paul do you think you love yourself and i said of course i do you know look i have you know once again i would always bounce back look what I have. I have a nice car. I have a nice house. I have a nice girl. I have this, I have that. And something that stuck out to me said, if you loved yourself, why are, you know, at this time it grew from opiates and heroin because it was cheaper. Um, why are you putting poison in you? You know? And, um, I thought, huh, but that was one I always think back on. And having been in and out of the program, I wanted, I was going to give myself one chance. You know, I, I wanted to love myself. The number one thing I wanted to do was love myself one time in my life. You know, from back in childhood, I didn't exactly love myself, let's say, because, you know, well, maybe what happened at home or that my home was broken or that. My relationship with my brothers wasn't perfect, you know. I couldn't fix none of that, but there was one time I was going to fix Paul, and that was the ultimate goal, was to fix Paul one time. You know, I also meant I had to let go of everything I ever thought that was important to me, you know. Um, you know, if the career that I didn't really like other than it, it paid me a good income, you know, 80 to a hundred thousand a year in a small town, that wasn't going to do it. You know, I knew that that was a, uh, as we might call maybe a defect of mine, the ability to earn money. And, um, the number one thing was to love myself. I wanted to have a foundation and I thought I was worthy of it, you know, that was it. And uh, that's what, you know, carries me today was, you know, I had some, let's say, family members and friends that, that I wanted to be part. Of. I seen them being successful in other ways, not just financially. And those were the people I didn't want to hurt no more. You know, and, um, you know, and, uh, I just was willing to do it. You know, I had proven to myself, I was, you know, I, that story would just span, you're talking from 31 to 43, you know, um, every person, everybody that ever put an ounce of effort into me, I had crap all over. So really, I mean, 
God's plan for me was just to, this is it. It's a wrap. Yeah. You know, there was, I couldn't overdose myself to death. I couldn't, there was no way out, you know? And yeah. I thought one time, let me see if I could love myself. Yeah. That's and how I, insidious that this disease of addiction is, is that, you know, it was fine for a long time uh, just wanting you, just wanting to control you, wanting to kill you. And then as we learn is that these tentacles of addiction, they wanted your wife, your brothers, your mom, dad. Um, they wanted your uncle's friends, um, lifelong friends that it just wants, it wants to destroy everything that you have. <clears throat> so all you have is the addiction left. Yeah. And so once you made the decision to love yourself, what, what did you do? What was the, what was the process? Was it in treatment or did you go to meetings or did you, what was the, the, the process. Well, I can tell you, I had been in and out of rehab a handful of times. Um, I had learned that it got me off the streets, away from work. And I learned of all the things you had to do. I have done a total of 200 days at an inpatient mental health facility. You know, that wasn't perfectly it. But the big turnaround was, you know, I went back to a rehab for the second time in 30 days. And I was willing to do anything that they said. You know, uh, they said, you're going to go to counseling. I did. It was a three-month program. Um, I asked the guy to be my sponsor. And whatever he said I was going to do, you know, um, I had realized that, you know, I would go into these places, you know, and I would have, you know, how in rehab a month in, you have these best friends who you've never had a best friend just like that before. And all we were doing was talking honestly, <laughs> you know, a month <laughs> in a simple, honest conversation, I think is the whole world. Cause I never did that. You know, if I was talking to friends, there was a, our family, I was always hiding something. You know, here's your gift, but uh, you don't know what's going on up here. But what the program, the 12-step program, whether it's AA or NA talks about, is what I did exactly. So early on, I learned that every time, if I spent them handful of times and went to rehab, it might have been more than that. Because there were second steps. You know, maybe I was living in a recovery house. But I learned that this time I was not going to leave a recovery, uh, a recovery facility and not have on the outside what the recovery facility gave me on the inside. Because I could have best friends. I could go to meetings with friends. You know, I, for 30 days, you build everything you need for recovery. And then when I would leave, I'd be high a block away, you know, because all that would disappear. So I had a sponsor on the inside, rest his soul. His name was Leonard. Um, you know, I did everything he said. One of the things that we talk about in 12-step programs is calling people, you know. He was a little overbearing when he would pick, you up, pick me up for a meeting. He would say... Get some numbers while you're in there or you're not getting back in the car, you know. And then, like, the next day when I was living in his recovery house, the next day, you know, he had me volunteering twice a week at a church. He said, you've been taking so long, you're going to give back. And I learned that giving back and serving others felt good, you know. So when people would say, hey, when are you going to get into the computers again? I was like, no way. I don't want that. This feels better. And I served at a church for a couple of years. They had a clothing drive, a food drive. We did twice a week. You know, um, 
I always wanted a relation, a better relationship with my higher power. So I began that journey. You know, I attended a fellowship group at the church every week uh, with my sponsor. And, uh, you know, a big part of that was starting to build these friendships that I never had, you know, long term. I, maybe I had a friend for the same friend for a year and neither one of us had used which meant I probably wasn't lying because as soon as I put drugs in me, I would lie, you know, and lying would feel bad and then feeling bad made me use. So these caring and loving relationships began to happen, you know, through step work, you know, I found it was doing what the, the program teaches us the 12 steps, you know, Leonard said, make calls. I did it. Leonard said, work your steps. I did it. When I left the rehab, I had step one, two, and three done. And, um, you know, that was it, you know, and, and through them steps, like, you know, I remember no matter what I had materially in my life, I never felt hopeful, you know, like it was just like, I'm going to go do the grind. I'm going to make enough money to pay off my car or my house or, present myself well on the inside I began to feel what it felt like to be Paul on the inside you know I had a little bit of hope I didn't have to control everything in my life um, so it was uh, friendships fellowships meetings and really early on it was the step work that changed my life that began to reveal to me who Paul is a little bit you know, and setting goals was a big part of it. You know, the step work. What I didn't know the step work was going to do was when he said you have to have step four done at a certain time, that could set a goal. You know, before, let's say, when I would study for a certification, most people that would be a good goal. I was doing it to look good. You know, I wanted to be the guy at work that had it, you know, uh, and then when I would get it, I, you know, read it right or. or you know, um, you know, a lot of people that surrounded me focused on money my whole life. You know, I washed dishes for three years. You know, my first three years of recovery, I washed dishes um, part-time. So it was things like that that the step work reveals. Gotcha. Okay, and, hold uh, on one second you know, for me, Paul. Another technical thing here. Hold on. So I think we got over our little technical thing there. Um, so, Paul, what you were saying was, you know, how you did it in the beginning, you know, the, the, the line, the, you know, I just wanted to, to love myself is just so profound and how you started that process to find it was you got a sponsor, you worked the steps, you called others, you know, reached out to others, you did service work, and then all of a sudden you started seeing hope. Um, and that is how you started to build this new foundation where you had this old foundation that wasn't serving you or anyone else. Right. It was broken down, creaky, cracked, terrible. But now you have this new foundation. And wh what has that done where did you go from there to, to bring right. you to where you are today? Yeah. Uh, go for it. We're recording, my friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, hey, I'm sorry. Yeah, Peter, we bring it up to these days. You know, the one thing I continue to do is appreciate Paul. You know, I've learned to love myself. I found out in life the things that really make me happy, you know, uh, I've learned through my higher power, 
that, you know, God, he put me on this earth to be happy, you know, and anything that I want to do, I'm capable of, you know, whether there's a challenge in the way or whether there's a disagreement in the way. I've learned how to deal with life better, you know, the hope I, some of the things that I've done um, in my recovery is what builds that foundation. You know, if I make a decision today that I'm going to record the just for today, every day for a year, I find out that I started that, let's say, to help one person every day, put more out in the world than I take in. And along the way, I found out that I get just as much from it, you know, reading and recording it every day that I never expected, you know, um, the last several years of my recovery, I've done other things that make Paul happy with himself. You know, I've enrolled at a local, uh, Bible Institute, let's say I just completed three years. Um, so, you know, I always wanted to be closer to my higher power. Well, maybe you should learn about them, you mm. know, so I feel more loving with my higher power, let's say, you know, and I feel like God has me here to be a happy person, you know, today, um, you know, I continue to help others when I can, you know, let's say through, uh, phone, you know, taking phone calls from other people. Um, one of the areas I'd said, I lost the career in technology. I found out that that doesn't necessarily make Paul happy, but, you know, I had an opportunity to take a job supporting QuickBooks and, uh, you know, not only could I do it at a good level, it wasn't just for the money. It was a position that I enjoy. So over the course of the last five years, I've been able to maintain a QuickBooks certification, which is pretty rare. You know, it's an accomplishment and, uh, you know, it doesn't feel good because I get a certificate. It feels good because it makes me happy on the inside. You know, it lets me know that I'm capable of doing challenging things. The gifts that God gave me to figure out things, you know, it satisfies that. And uh, so I keep doing it. Um, you know, the friendships that I have today you know, aren't so much on what I have or what they have, you know, um, it's based on love, caring, understanding. Um, so, you know, today when I have a problem, um, you know, instead of being fearful to tell another man that I'm hurting on the inside because, you know, uh, whatever the reason is, is that you know, being a man is to talk about it, you know, when I feel less than in a cer certain situation, I don't destroy myself. You know, I talk about it. Uh, the foundation I have today is like, I know that in the eyes of my higher power, I'm definitely a better person. You know, I've learned one of the things that motivates me is uh, you know, I used to be so fearful of everything, you know, anything I, I just feel a, full of fear and, you know, learning today that fear of failure, that lasts forever. You know, if there's something I want to do, you know, fear of failure is forever. Where if I, I don't have the fear today to try new things and not do well at it, you know, it's not like, if I don't do well on it, oh, well, I just move on. Um, you know, I become a more tolerable person. You know, I don't act out with anger. Yeah. You know, through therapy and counseling. I've been in counseling since the first two months. 
And it's not so much because I'm totally broken anymore. It's um, I'm healing the onion that's inside of Paul. You know, the new layers that I never knew existed. You know? Um, so it sounds like, you know, what you've done, you you know, this transformation is, is it's not, you know, what, what your gift is now is what's on the inside of Paul and not about what's on the outside because what you created on the outside was this false narrative, who you were, what you look like, you look good, you dressed well, you had the nicest car, but now it's what you have on the inside, which is the best heart of Paul, the honesty of Paul, the, the joy of Paul, the hope of, of Paul, that's what you're putting out into the world now um, through the 12 steps of AA, Narcotics Anonymous, what have you. Um, yeah. It's a whole new foundation, whole new person. Yeah. Yeah. And I know today that it's just one day at a time. You know, each, like the reading said, each day I have to renew my commitment not only to recovery, but to Paul, you know, um, I like being, you know, a better balanced person. Um, you know, the life I found in recovery, waking up each day and having motivation for life, you know, not, not everything being based on, you know, I have to go make X amount of money because I need this, you know, I have, everything I need, you know, being able to reach out and have a conversation with you, Peter, and listening to your other podcast. What a joy that is that we could share this with people where, you know, even the, perhaps the trauma and the tragedy that I've experienced can now be used for good. You know, um, yeah, I work with a couple young guys. I said, I worked during home games at the ballpark. And uh, just having, you know, these young men that are experiencing the same challenge as I did as a young man, um, you know, being able just to offer them a listening ear, you know, on the, I give a young kid a ride home every, you know, when we work, um, you know, what a joy, you know, he doesn't know, to, he's struggling with what, what does he want to do with his life? And if he don't hurry up and do it, his mom's going to kick him out, you know, <laughs> he has a lot of fear. So he always enjoys taking a ride home with me, you know, and being that person, um, I'm not in a hurry all the time. And if that's what I get today, then I'll be happy with it. You know, and I do like Paul. Gotcha. You know, Paul's a pretty consistent guy. That is, that's tremendous. So now with, um, that's an incredible story. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. So where can, I, I know I mentioned it right at the beginning, but give me your, give us your Twitter handle uh, where you can go on a daily basis to yeah. uh, hear the, the reading. Okay. Yeah. If you go to Twitter and you put in hashtag JFT guy, that should find it. Also on Twitter, my username is Christ for Life 1970. If you go to Google and just Google hashtag JFT guy, you'll find all my videos. And uh, the first, the current day's video will always be at the top. And that'll take you to Twitter, YouTube, Rumble, Facebook. Gotcha. Gotcha. Pretty easy to find. And I know in our conversation, you know, off the off the recording, uh, you know, I think there's some some really cool things that are coming in the future, you know, uh, really based in, you know, other ways to serve others. I think there's a, you know, a chance of a you know partnership here where we can, you know, really spread the message um, that uh, of recovery, of faith and of hope. And uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, to that as we, you know, look down the road. Absolutely. And uh, sounds great. I'm looking forward to it.
But I really appreciate you being here today. It, it's been a, a blessing for me, for sure. Um, and uh, can't thank you enough for reaching out and saying, hey, I'd love to be part of the of the podcast and uh, telling us your story. And uh, it's really an inspiring one. So I really yeah. thank you so much. Well, I thank you, too. And, you know, this is something I wanted to do, Peter. And I know from this point forward, having this conversation, I'm capable of having the next one. And we just keep getting better, you know. So um, what an experience. Thank you, Peter, for having me on your show. You are very welcome. And uh, let me go there. And you have a great rest of your day. And then I'll be hitting you up on uh, Messenger again here real soon, okay? Yeah. Hey, how do you... Does this go out right away or do you check it out? Yeah, I check it out. There's a couple okay. of things I got to do. And uh, I'll yeah. message you first and let you know what's going out. It'll be out today. Okay. All right. Share it away, oh. you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just think a year from now, Peter. <laughs> you know what I mean? They'll be like, can you believe that? Look at these guys. Look you know, at these guys. Oh, yeah. I love it. All right. All right, my friend, you take care, and uh, we'll you talk to you bye. soon. Uh, bye now. All right, bye. All right, so, wow. Uh, what a uh, terrific podcast. Uh, this has been the uh, Creating Hope Together podcast. It's on... Uh, many platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, just uh, Google Creating Hope Together, and you'll be able to find it. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for uh, the support. If you'd like to support the, the uh, podcast, there's a way to do that on the homepage. So go ahead and take a look at that. And uh, if you want to uh, contact me, the email's there. It's O-U-R-C-H-T-Podcast at gmail.com. Message me. If you're interested in being on the program, uh, just let me know. That is, And we'll talk about that. Um, so again, Thank you again for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye-bye.